This is the Master Cinema Cast. My name's Tom Jennings. And I'm Joachim Thiessen. And joining us today is one half of the Midnight Movie Cowboys, Hunter Dusing. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing good. How are y'all? Yeah, hungover. But... <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm doing good, so... <laughs> They don't drink in Norway, though, do they? They, they, they outlawed mead. So, <laughs> yeah. well, I think having my experience in Norway, it's about—is it about it's like seven pounds a pint or something, isn't it? It's pretty excessive, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, no, I we can't afford I to drink yet. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 my one occasion of going to Norway, I seem to sort of remember sort of thinking buying a can of Coke that was like three quid or something like that, and thinking, yeah, I like this place, but I'm never coming back here again. It's just <laughs> ridiculously expensive. But we're going to be talking about Two Lane Blacktop today. But before we get that, we need to do a quick roundup of all things going on in Masters of Cinema. Joachim, what have we got coming up? We have had some exciting news that Masters of Cinema have announced a uh, new release. Quite unexpected since they announced their new releases only two weeks ago, I think. And this is a new requirement, uh, Andrew Bujalski's Computer Chess, which is uh, getting a late 2013 theatrical release and then it's getting an early 2014 home cinema must of cinema release and uh, Bujalski is a part of the mumblecore movement that started in the early 2000s and has released uh, films such as Funny Haha, Mutual Appreciation and Beeswax and I've heard of none of these but um I've heard of Funny Haha. Mm -hmm. what well, have you yeah, seen it or I haven't but uh you know coming from like Memphis and there were a lot of like indie filmmakers there who got in with those mumblecore guys like Joe Swanberg. And, uh, you know, so a lot of those directors were kind of hanging around the Memphis area. So, hmm. you know, I kind of got to know those movies by reputation. I saw a few of them and, you know, most of them are pretty insufferable. It's like white 20 somethings, uh, you know, <laughs> talking about bullshit and occasionally having sex with each other. <laughs> Computer chess, it doesn't seem to be a mumblecore film, though. Um, it's a period piece uh, set in the 1980s of a um, tournament of chess players and computer chess programs. Um, so who can be the world champion, a chess program or a human, basically, so... Yeah, existential comedy. Yeah, I mean, I have to be honest, I, I've never ever heard of this film before and I've never ever seen a mumblecore film. And I think the reason why I've never seen a mumblecore film is because they're called mumblecore films. And I, just, <laughs> I think uh, you have. It's called uh, Tiny Furniture. Is that Does that come under the banner of mumblecore? So, sort of, although it's a lot more written than most of those mumblecore movies. Mm. A lot of them are kind of improv mm. and a lot of people talking over each other and stuff, whereas... Tiny Furniture is a lot more focused in its writing, but it is kind of, it's a lot like those other Mumblecore movies in terms of tone and themes and content. So Yeah, so basically people I couldn't give a shit about talking about. Yeah, you like, hate them. Tom. Yeah, I think, yeah. No, I, 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 yeah, as soon as I, I mean, I, I remember hearing, I think it was on the Criterion Cast, I talked about Mumblecore, and I was like, what is this Mumblecore thing? And then I saw some stills from one of them, I just thought, oh God, it's like... It looks like a kind of the conversation you have at four o'clock in the morning when you're in someone's living room absolutely mullered. And at the time you think you're mm -hmm. saying something really profound and you sort of wake up in the next day and you think, oh, my God, what on earth will we <laughs> gabbling on about? And I, I, you know, like, you know, some of those things. I mean, is it is it sort of like, um, you know, the kind of the dogma movement, you know, is it, is it, does it have rules or anything like that? Or is it just kind of more? It, sort of... it doesn't have rules, but they are kind of dogma-esque in that they're very lo-fi kind right. of movies, you know. 
but they don't have rules or regulations or you know they're not because you know they're not like if people are having sex they there better be penetration going on otherwise it's not you know <laughs> yeah no um yeah i will it's probably a genre i think i will probably uh as you say i probably really won't get into that but yeah like i said i've never heard of this film at all so um you know, when it's... i heard computer chess i thought it would be like a documentary or something mm, that's what i was thinking yeah but um what else we've got then uh Joachim? in other news we have uh, a restoration of the cabinet of dr caligari which is getting Ooh. a release in uh, 2014 at the berlinale and uh, this is a film that I really hope must of cinema pick up because it's right up there alley in terms of just stature and profile. And it's one of my favorite uh, German expressionist films. So, yeah, it's pretty one of those movies that really changed the face of cinema in terms of how just gorgeous it is. Mm. <laughs> you know? The use of shadow and canted angles and just the mm. the acting and everything is just the epitome of expressionism to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing about these films is, is uh, I mean, I had it when I bought the Sunrise Blu-ray and it's kind of got, got a quick tangent a minute. But when I was buying it, the guy in the shop looked down at it and he went, is this even worth buying on Blu-ray? And I sort of looked at him thinking, well, that's a good sales pitch, isn't it? For you know, It was from HMV, you know, a, a store which has recently gone into administration. And I'm sat there thinking, well, yeah, you know, this is why I, I mean, one of the great things about Blu-ray has been these older films, I think, getting releases and how they look now. I know some people have sort of said, well, they look too good in many respects. You know, you see detail, which you shouldn't really be able to see and you know, that kind of thing. But I find films, I, I find my the favourite films I've bought in my Blu-ray collection have been these older titles. And especially, you know, we'll get to Sunrise one day. Hmm. Yeah, the crisp, the like a lot of the crisp black and white ones, like just looks so good. Like, uh, you know, like Kiss Me Deadly on Criterion yeah. Blu-ray just looks, oh, just beautiful. It's just, it's amazing these times we live in, where eighty-four years later after a film is released, we can watch it in pristine condition. It's incredible. We are really lucky, actually. Mm-hmm. It definitely, and I mean, like, what do you make as well when they kind of do these old releases and they kind of put these kind of like surround sound mixes onto them as well? Because I know a few people who are a bit off with that, and I personally, I don't like it when you've got like a film from the seventies that was, you know, like we, we'll talk about it in two lane blacktop actually, but it was a mono film. They've done the surround sound mix for it. But what do you think when they kind of go back rescore it and do these surround sound things? I mean, you think it's like in a way. I, I like it in a way because I think it's kind of like it kind of replicates a certain sort of experience of what it would have been like to go and watch those films live. But where do you guys kind of stand on that type of thing? Um, I think if is as long as they have like kind of the original mix in there, yeah, I'm I'm okay. I like, but if they have a new mix that you can take advantage of with you know whatever setup you have, then that's fine. Just as long as I have the. As long as I have, like, if it's, like, you know, Seven Samurai or something, I want that, like, mono mix, too, for as an option. Yeah, but. I completely agree. Um, we talked about this uh, on the last episode as well, that the way that the film was released and intended is the way I prefer to watch the movie. So, But uh, as long as it's available, I'm cool with them getting a new mix on it as well. Because I, one of the things I find about a lot of silent films on DVD, I, I think it's a, a box that I've got. It's, like, the Kino early film early cinema collection the music that is over the top of these films is often horrendous it sounds mm-hmm. like you know like the, the kind of the demo button on a keyboard or something mm. like that and, I, and i've watched a few of them before where i've actually kind of put other music on whilst i'm watching the film because i get so distracted by how god awful it, it is and have you ever seen a silent film with a live music accompaniment no i i, I saw the general and man with the movie camera with a live musical accompaniment if you can ever get 
the op- if you ever get the opportunity to do that, I'd recommend it. Uh, me too. Um, I have a story that I will save for our Passion of Joan of Arc uh, episode, but uh, I watched that one with a live audience or a live oh. orchestra and it was, uh, yeah, pretty great. Yeah. Cool. Okay, what else we got next, Daniel? The final thing is that Alex Cox, which uh, film The Reaper Man just received a Criterion Blu-ray release, um, his new project is Build the Galactic Hero. He funded Mm -hmm. it through Kickstarter, and uh, he has reached his goal of $100,000. And uh, the film is basically a comedy based on anti-war science fiction novel written by Harry Harrison. And where humans wage war against reptilian alien species. So low Sounds budget and high concept, yeah. Yeah, so £100,000 to do that. Um, mm. Yeah, yes. I, I, well, I hope he uses his £100,000 wisely. I, I, what, what are your kind of thoughts on Kickstarter? Just sort of briefly, because I, I, I think I'm already bored of it. <laughs> I I quite like it. I like the idea of it and I like the democratization, but I feel that it is difficult to find project that you would find interesting. Uh, it's, it's difficult to sort through the myriad of projects that are available there. So, yeah. Well, my, my main issue is, you know, give us money. But I, I'm, I'm like, if I'm going to give you money, I want part of the project. That, that's I think that's the sort of that would be the most interesting avenue for it to go down you know for someone to do say you know like we want a hundred thousand pounds is a hundred thousand shares in yeah. this project you know that's how i not think strictly a donation but something yeah. you invest in yeah i yeah. think that's i think that's the yeah that's i've not seen anyone do that yet and i think when they do do that i'd be sort of more inclined to sort of get involved but yeah it seems like Kickstarter's becoming kind of an extension of fan culture really mm. yeah be- be- because like you know now like you know more st- kind of some established people are using it like, uh, you know, Veronica Mars just funded, got like $2 million or something out of it, you know, and fans get to, you know, they get shit in return. They get like, yeah. you know, some something like, you know, a copy of the script or like, you know, they get to have dinner with Kristen Bell or whatever, you know. If they purchase it <laughs> they, for $5,000, yeah, they get a dinner. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's just like, the, or you can come hang out on the set or have a walk on or whatever, you know. And it just, it, it almost seems like, hey, fans, you know, give us some money and you'll get to, like, participate or something. But I, I'm, I'm with Tom, though. If I'm giving money to a movie, I do want to own a part of that movie, yeah. you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, it's nice to get, like, a, a copy of the script, like, signed by everybody or whatever. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's just going to sit there on my shelf. I don't care. Because, you know? yeah, I mean, the other thing as well, I mean, I found it, it sort of giving people that hope that, oh, if we raise enough, perhaps we can get Firefly back. And he's like, oh, Christ. Oh. You know, just like, <laughs> and- it's just enough. You know, like, that's my sort of, that's the other sort of side of Kickstarter that sort of, I, I think, might rub me up the wrong way. I've already seen a few people like, let's resurrect this TV show from the 90s. You know, it's like, it's not going to happen. <laughs> well, and, and it's ridiculous, too, because you can't, uh, you really can't fund, it's it's unrealistic to fund a TV show through Kickstarter. Like, you could do, like, a movie <laughs> But a whole TV show—that's a—that's a, that's a yeah. tall fucking order right there. No, know? I mean, I, I think about. I mean, it's good. In, like I said, it's, it's good in theory, but I do sort of think it's. I, I think it's just going to be like Joachim said. I think it's just going to be too much, you know, of people trying to get money. And yeah, I think it might dilute really the you know, the, the potential impact of it with well, so many different projects. You know, and, and film is becoming increasingly democratized over the years with you know the digital technology, the internet. Blah, blah, blah. And like, but 
you know, like there's going to be, which means there's going to be a lot more shit out there and Kickstarter is going to be full of a lot of shit. But, you know, the only way that uh, projects will get any uh, exposure is if they go to the media. And the only ones that will get an exposure through the media is these um, um, celebrities. So exactly. Exactly. Uh, But like like they say, cream rises to the top, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I heard he's. I mean, isn't he trying to do another Garden State? And I'm like, Christ. Yeah, he's doing like a sequel, or or is it just like his follow up? It's the same vein that he says. Yeah. You know, like Garden State is. I think that movie helped ruin American independent cinema. (laughs) Honestly, because there there's so many things in that movie that just seem to take hold in the zeitgeist like natalie portman's character in the indie soundtrack and sort of the overly designed look Mm. and everything yeah it felt like i mean to me i thought it was a bit of a kind of a wes anderson kind of yeah definitely that type of a thing but no it's uh yeah if if kickstarter helps fund garden skate remakes i think perhaps there should be a motion to have it shut down and get anonymous on the case or something like that and (laughs) rid us do you mean there's, there's just no need for that (laughs) <laughs> no yeah i mean you know if celebrities can get people to pay for their movie without having to get anything back more power to them but, uh, yeah I mean, and because... this is the other thing as well i mean and i don't know how like did, how much did he need for this film like two million dollars something surely he's got that much money oh of course he does Do, but, you know, like you know you know but it's why pay for your own movie when you yeah, can get yeah, other people yeah, to yeah, do yeah. it <laughs> the plebs to do it yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, if, yeah i mean you know if i thought well, I could re- pay for this myself, or I could get other people to do it. I mean, which one are you going to pick, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, true. You got a point. No, no. Thing. So in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at Monty Hellman's 1971 film, Tulane Blacktop. Sure we'll race. you damn right we'll race. For pink. Pink slips? You mean for cars? Where to? You name it. Washington, D.C. After D.C., we'll go on down to Florida. I've got some nice beaches down there. Just color me gone, baby! We ought to get some action soon. We'll need Fred to do a little work on the carburetors and check out the rear end. I want air conditioning. I want air conditioning. I want automatic heat. I don't want automatic heat, what is this film really about? Because, I mean, normally we do a kind of a synopsis when we talk about these things. And it's kind of hard, really, to kind of say what Tulane Blacktop's about, other than it's about a couple of guys and a girl who kind of have sort of a race against someone else, but not ever really sort of have a race. And yeah. it's just sort of kind of drifts on. And it, it's, I suppose it's, it's one of the things about you, know, about this film is, it's very, very hard, I think, to kind of say, other than it's a road movie of sorts, other than the fact it's set on road, that it, it, I, I, I struggle really to think about this kind of film's classification in that term. I mean, it does, it is a road movie and it goes through like, you know, Route 66 and, you know, Monty Hellman talks about this on the Criterion DVD anyway, about uh, how it kind of captures the lost, before the interstates popped up, like kind of the lost American highways that kind of connected America like when they were still around and it's kind of a portrait of that. And, but it's, you know, the plot you have like, you know, these two guys who basic the driver and the mechanic played by 
uh, James Taylor and Dennis Wilson, uh, two musicians. And they're, they're like, you know, they don't really talk much. And when they do talk, it's about cars or racing. And they seem to make a living by racing. And they meet this like fast talking, uh, serial liar (laughs) who drives a GTO and they call him GTO. And, you know, they basically decide to race to Washington DC for pinks, which is the pink slips to the car. So they're racing for the cars, but the movie's not really about the race, really. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing about the road movie, isn't it? I mean, I, I mean, what, just before we kind of talk to you, I mean, what your kind of like, I mean, what do you think about road movies in general? Are they kind of, is it kind of a, what is it a type of film that you enjoy? Or? Yeah, I do. Uh, but it eh, kind of depends on the movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah. there's, there's movies like this and, you know, that are kind of interesting. And, but, you know, I saw The Identity Thief with Jason Bateman in the theater and I wanted to shoot myself. So, I mean, I've always found the thing about the, the road movie is it's to me, it's the quintessential kind of American film, really. I think it's, you know, you couldn't make a road movie in somewhere like England because you could travel from one end of the other to within a day, you know, and I think that's the sort of thing about, yeah, you know, with, with these types of films. I mean, and often, more often than not, the kind of like, you know, it's, it, it, it sort of, they veer into this kind of like metaphor type of uh, film you know like that easy ride you know it's all about kind of the hippie movement coming going to come into an end mm-hmm. and i found with two lane blacktop i was struggling to sort of think to myself well, what's the sort of the subtext to this kind of journey that they're on i mean and yeah certainly i suppose for the, the james taylor character definitely you do sort of feel there is some sort of kind of character change at the end of but all not character change but he's you know he seems to have experienced something but I know it's one of the things, yeah, kind of Joachim was saying before. I mean, you kind of struggled with the film a little bit, didn't you, Joachim, and kind of your kind of enjoyment of it, perhaps. And I was wondering, was it because it seemed a bit sort of, you know, lacking in a certain sort of department in terms of its sort of, I don't know, message or something like that? I think uh, the message is quite clear for me, actually, where we are witnessing a generational shift in America, where we are going away from the living on the road and experiencing the road to just using the road as a uh, something that we move on, uh, where we get from one place to another, where we have this fast lifestyle. And we are witnessing this America that where you are taking your time and basically experiencing America's nature and the journey, the journey is more yeah. important than the destination. Definitely. Yeah. So I think exactly. I got that message, but I think what I struggled with the most was the uh, characters being so very simple that they became too simple, perhaps, for my taste. The only character I felt any real mystery about was GTO and, to a slight extent, the girl. But I I wasn't riveted in any dramatic turns or I wasn't... I wasn't invested in the film. I was watching a beautiful film and uh, a exciting film in that... I was thinking a lot about it afterwards, but as I was watching it, it was kind of passing in front of my eyes. I kind of had the same experience the first time I watched it. It's one of those movies that every time I go back to it, it gets better. I just, I, I don't know. It just, it's one of those movies that grows on me every time, which I like. You know, that's the way my favorite movies often are. But, you know, the first time it does kind of pass by you a little bit because it's, you know, it is so distant. Mm. I think one of the things that people might struggle with Tulane Blacktop, and I think it's pretty indicative of how we are of films at the moment, is that we expect so much plot and kind of characters, don't we, when we go to cinema. You know, it's all sort of your things. And this is the complete opposite, I think, with Tulane Blacktop. And when I saw it, 
many many years ago i i didn't enjoy it the first time i saw it because i thought I was, I was waiting for something to happen and once i kind of yeah and once i got, got over the fact that it wasn't and there wasn't any racing in it really you know there wasn't sort of this sort of you know these kind of ch- car chase or anything like that and you just sort of you are just spending time with these guys and then I think I began to kind of... Yeah, there's never like, there's never the bit where it's like, oh man, they're almost to DC. Who's going <laughs> to, yeah. you know, who's going to pull in? Who's going to get the pink? Who's going to lose their car? You know? Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not the cannonball run, is it? Let's be honest, because I mean... No, it's definitely not. <laughs> I mean, I, I, so perhaps in a small way, uh, I wish that we did have Jackie Chan kind of going past in a kind of ridiculously uh, uh, technical technological car, but it just isn't that film. And I, it's it's one of the things that where I, I have struggled with Two-Day Blacktop and sort of what to make of it over the kind of times I've watched it. I certainly enjoy it, but I don't know if I kind of like I love it or anything like that. I think it's one of these films which is kind of it's a it's very much an oddity, and I think that could have come to anyway. Certainly, it's cult status, really. This mm-hmm. is the second time I've seen it. The first time I saw it, I didn't know anything about it, and I watched it with uh, four other mates, and I kind of said to them, "I think this is a, like a drag racing movie or something," because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had so no it's idea. It's a bit like Gone in sixty seconds, the original, yeah. of course, not the remake. <laughs> But um, so we were watching it and I quickly realized that this is not a drag racing movie, that this is a (laughs) slow movie. And I was completely aware of kind of the mood that Monty Hellman wants to set. And I think he's very successful in the way that he builds the mood and the way that he presents his movie. Uh, And I liked it actually more the first time I saw it than when I was uh, revisiting it this time around, because now I was more aware of where it was going and I didn't feel that it clicked as much as I felt the first time I was discovering it. So way to shit on my point earlier. Jeez. <laughs> no, I mean, well, I mean, I, I think you know, just come, I, th- I think one of the issues really, and it's to talk about is, is James Taylor and Dennis Wilson, because they're never named, are they during the film? And I, and I, I've, every time I watched it, I thought, right. Are, you know, they are never named, are they? They're just simply the driver and the mechanic. Mm. And it is this sort of, in a way, it's it's kind of quite frustrating. But then I, I went on a train journey with a friend the other day, and it's like a three-hour journey. And we, I think we spoke about three times, you know, and that's what friends do. You know, you don't necessarily kind of, you know, if you're going on a journey or something, like you don't tend to sit there kind of gassing away. Well, you, you might do, but sometimes, you know, you will be there in science. And I'm sort of thinking, and, I, and then... I think one of the things that kind of distracted me is I'm sat thinking that's James Taylor. Yeah, yeah. It's like thinking, you know, and, and you know, I've got a lot of this guy's albums, you know, and sort of you try and associate the man and his music, and this just seems very, very. It's a very bizarre performance, I think, from him because hmm. I, I don't know if it's good or bad. That's my sort of one of my issues I sort of have with it. I kind of enjoyed his presence, though. I, I they like because. You know, male obsession is one of the big themes in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, they drive this custom car. They're always working on it. You know, it's all they talk about. And it's just like, they both just seem so, their heads just seem so in this thing that, um, I don't know, I just, I thought Taylor really just had that sort of obsessive, but quietly so quality. Um, and... And I thought Dennis Wilson brought that as well. Uh, kind of complimented that in a weird way. Yeah, my biggest issue with the film is actually James Taylor, where I feel that he's so uncomfortable, as I was saying before we started recording. I feel his uncomfortableness is sleeping towards me through the screen, and he just feels so vacant that, yeah, I I, I can't relate to him. Uh, Dennis Wilson, I think, gives a good performance, and he's feel, he feels very natural in front of the camera, but I just... I would wish that we had someone 
who could give something more of himself in a role that requires so much presence. Well, what do you guys think of Warren Oates? Well, I was just going to come to that, actually. I mean, (laughs) Warren Oates is one of those actors who... I mean, he's he's always the kind of the character actor, isn't he? He, he didn't, mm. he never seemed to kind of like graduate into kind of being the leading man type of person. But his character in this film, I mean, I, I was howling at some of it actually. It, it's just mm. hilarious, like to watch this guy because it's like you, you, in a way, you, you pick up, he seems like dead preppy and like clean cut and all that kind of thing. But as the kind of the film goes on, you sort of realise that he is just like what does this guy do all day is it just literally just drive around is that is that what he's been doing for like the past 30 years it's unbelievable and he's sort of sat there and it's like again you're sort of waiting for something like kind of like profound or you know anything coming out but the, the point of the film is he's so boring he bores himself you know he's just like he, he gets it he p- picks people up and just starts telling them about his life and there's a there's a brilliant scene where he suddenly starts telling james taylor he's like going oh i had a job as a tv producer he said i don't care <laughs> and, he just, and, he just, and it's the most brutal line and you think oh let him finish you know what I mean the guy's giving you I don't know and I think that like, he's just because um, his car breaks down and it's they're helping him out but you're thinking I'll just entertain him for 15 minutes you know let him have a chat but James Taylor because he's such a like kind of just so neurotic just like yeah shut up you know whatever yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean who, care, who cares about your life, life. It's like, and you can tell he's like you know like, oh, I'm going to talk about his kids and his, you know, his wife and he's, yeah whatever shut up you know carry on <laughs> It seems that he's making up this background story just to make himself more interesting, but he's failing in every regard. So, yeah, he's like wildly insecure talking about like, he, he you know, everybody I think has known someone like mm. that yeah, yeah. who tells like crazy, stupid lies that you can smell or bullshit pretty quick, <laughs> but they just keep doing it because they so desperately want to be, you know, everybody's friend and interesting to everybody. Mm. One of my favorite bits, though, is when he picks up Harry Dean Stanton, and he starts in with kind of his bullshit, and Harry Dean Stanton, uh, like, is clearly, like, a gay hitchhiker, and is trying to make moves on him, and, uh, but GTO eventually, like, kicks him out, but, uh, Monty Hellman said that Harry Dean Stanton was very upset that he had to play a homosexual (laughs) in the movie, and... He puts his hand on his leg and like GTO just goes, no, I'm not into that. I'm, goes, I'm in a race. Not into that. I'm in a race. <laughs> and, and it's it's sort of like dangerous things. You're thinking, well, if he wasn't in a race, is there a possibility this might go somewhere? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like but at that moment in time, he's like, no, 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 I'm not. No, I'm not interested in this. I mean, but he says it like, I'm in a race, and it's like, yeah, the most. Yeah, actually, you're right. It it does seem like, hmm, like would he be? Because he's like, he doesn't say like. Hey, I'm no queer or nothing. He doesn't do that. He's just like, yeah. my mind's in the race, man. You know. And it's not like get out the car, is it? He doesn't. He's, he's obviously not. He's, it's just a very strange. Way. And that's the kind of thing about this film. It's, it's kind of like, you know, I've sat there kind of like howling at laughter, and then you're thinking, am I meant to be laughing at this? You know, is it meant to be that funny, or is it just because I'm so immature that I find <laughs> that type of thing funny? You know. And I just thought, I thought, Christ, you know, what what what, what to make of that? Because he eventually kicks him out in the end. Yeah, well, he's like, it's raining, and he's like, I'm, get out. Like, I told you I'm not in, I told you to keep your claws off me. And he's like, well, we could still be friends, can't we? <laughs> and uh, he goes, all right, I'm letting you out at the next town or something. <laughs> but I mean, but, yeah, and then like, Harry Dean, yeah, Harry Dean Sutton character's like, you know, he's in tears and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, what is this film? You know, it's just sort of like so bizarre, the tonal shifts in it. And it's like, as well, he's he, what he's wearing as well was amusing me. 
Because he just seems to have this yeah. sort of collection of like pastel coloured jumpers. Oh, and I love how he always has to talk about his music collection. Hey, I got country, western, <laughs> R&B. <laughs> Something that fits everyone. So if it's his character that he's trying to please everyone, yeah. <laughs> no, but, it's, I know, but he is the most interesting person in the entire film, I think. Mm. It's just like, and then, yeah, with the girl as well, when he's trying to sort of like, you know, win her over, as it were. He's like, you know, oh, we can move to, I can't remember, he says like move to Mexico or something like that. And you're like thinking, yeah. love, don't get in the car. <laughs> yeah. The girl is uh, one of the most interesting characters, I feel, because she seems to be this disruptive force that is um, damaging this holy trinity of the driver, the mechanic in the car. And she's kind of getting everything off balance uh, throughout the film. So I feel that she's the one I'm gravitating towards the most. And she seems the most like free creature where she chooses where to go. She's not like this backseat honey that is just following them and does everything they say. She has her own opinions and you can hear her voice through the character. Um, that actress, Laurie Bird, she was only in like three movies. She was in uh, this, another Monty Hellman film, uh, Cockfighter. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, if you like Warren Oates, that's one worth checking out. No, Cockfighter is one of my favorite redneck cockfighting films. <laughs> it's, it's, it's up there. It, it's, it's pretty. Uh, you know, when I watch that movie, you know, it has a lot of chickens get killed in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can't put that and thing up like, at the end saying animal, no animals got hurt during the making of the film. No, <laughs> I listened to the commentary too, and like some of the chicken fights, they were wearing rubber spurs, but some of them, like they actually had to like kill the chickens. Yeah. I was like, damn. But uh, so yeah, if you're a if you're a donating to PETA, you might not <laughs> want to see that. Yeah, but yeah. um. But uh, but she was in that, and she had a like a little bit part in Annie Hall. But she died like really young, like at age twenty five. Mm. This is one of those cursed films because I mean, like Dennis Wilson didn't make it to his forty. I think he was like thirty nine or something when he died. You know, it's one of those. Yeah, it, it seems to be slightly well. It's, it's one of those slightly cursed films when you start looking at thinking, Jesus, you know, it's just dead, dead sad, isn't it? When you see things like that. Well, and like I read that she killed herself. Like, but uh, I I thought that she had OD'd. But she committed suicide, and um, yeah, and uh, but yeah, she. I think she dated Monty Hellman, and uh, and she was also known for being like Art Garfunkel's girlfriend too. Right, right. So. It's a, no, it's a strange one because I mean her character. I mean they they completely ignore her throughout the entire film. And this is another thing I was slightly unsure of as well because it's like where I I, I can't quite see why kind of James Taylor sort of becomes quite obsessed with her. Mm. I, I didn't I didn't buy that really. I didn't see the attraction. Pure proximity, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, well, I suppose I if think, you're just driving along with your mate, anything with a skirt, you know, right. I think it was just, yeah, she's a girl, she's here. <laughs> so basically, you know. she could have been anyone. Got a vagina, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, I mean, it is, I mean, it does, I mean, her, her being there as well, you know, when like, the Warren Oates character, because like, because I sort of come to like him, so I'm like thinking, I want her to go off of him at the end, you know, and sort of live happily ever after, wherever he is. Because he, he's, he's trying to, when he's trying to seduce her as well, or trying to get to go with him, it's so unsubtle. It's literally yeah. just like, get in, drive with me. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to hang out with those guys. All they think about is cars. Well, one of my one of my favorite scenes is actually where James he's teaching her how to ride a car. Especially when the camera goes behind them and he's uh, holding her hand and the gear shift and there's this um, shift in the tone and uh, that scene is very well played. I think and you can kind of see the attraction come through there. I feel. Mm, yeah. 
again, it's like you don't. I mean, it's like kind of like the romance in Blade Runner. I've never really kind of bought that between kind of Deckard and Rachel, which just seems completely forced because that's what the script says. And mm. in this, I, I just think because obviously this kind of this James Taylor character is such a kind of a blank slate. I, I didn't sort of see. I, I, I didn't quite believe it, as it were. It just seemed to be more of a kind of you know that's because that's what he was meant to do. But as I understand. Monty Hellman didn't actually give them the script at all. He just gave them one page yeah. a day. So he probably didn't even know he was meant to be falling in love with her. So that's the... Yeah, he said that James Taylor was kind of pissed off about yeah. that during filming. He said he he thought that, like, you know, he was he thought Monty Hellman didn't trust him or something. And I think James Taylor was kind of insecure because he, was a control you know, freak. he hadn't done much acting. And yeah, he yeah, he's a control freak. And so uh, you know, and I I Monty Hellman said that James Taylor wasn't too happy about that but uh and i think james taylor even confirmed it on the interview he and hellman have a conversation on the criterion edition i don't know about the masters of cinema one but no it's not on that okay the way hellman approached working with the actors was probably uh probably interesting to endure but anyways if you read the uh, booklet on masters of cinema there is actually a diary of uh, like a week or something from a writer that has been following them during production is it the Rolling Stone piece? Uh, that might be it, because it has this Rolling Stone feel to it. Yeah, because I know Rolling Stone followed them around and wrote a piece on yeah, it. Yeah, it could be. But you can see that uh, the way that Monty Hellman is making the film is like doing 25, 26 takes of it until they are so tired that they don't know what they're saying, so... Yeah, I mean, when I was listening to the commentary, actually, there was a scene where they were at the, like, the petrol station, and he said, oh, we were here for three days. And I... <laughs> doing what doing three days you know what i mean like d- what why you know just, like, they're just filling up the car and you, you know it's i i think when you kind of films are made like that you, you as i understand i mean the, the first cut of this one was like three and a half hours long mm. and oh yeah you know i mean i i think it's a kind of a bizarre way of making films i mean having you know, actually made a short film i, I you know, only a short film but i mean it the thought of kind of like not really sort of, you know, just shooting loads and sort of seeing what happens in the end, you know, trying to help, you know, get it done in editing seems kind of ridiculous to me. So wasteful as well. Well, like, uh, you know, and you heard, I, like, I heard that Easy Rider had the same thing going where like mm. Dennis Hopper's preferred cut was like three hours long and Peter Fonda and someone, one of the other producers took it away from him and basically like cut it down significantly. And, uh, yeah, that's a big argument between them still, or not now, but, uh, (laughs) when Dennis Hopper was still alive, at least. Yeah. And Dennis Hopper said when it was done, he was like, man, don't ever listen to me again. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful, man. (laughs) Well, I can imagine actually that would probably be, I I should, I should imagine that quite a few people came to that conclusion with Dennis Hopper at the kind of the peak of his adultness because yeah, yeah, I mean, it'd be like, yeah, you know, oh Christ, here he is again, you know, Dennis has been, Dennis is, is, this movie is being directed by cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. It's strange. I mean, like, because Monty Hellman as well. I mean, you know, this is—he's not exactly had a massive career, has he? Kind of, he, he seems to be one of these sort of guys who kind of yeah, his time's got like late sixties, early seventies. But he had this period where he was like he was like one of the Corman kids, mm. you know, like he was making films for Corman. Like he's one of the like thousands of directors who worked on the Terror. But you know, he did those westerns and then like didn't really do much for a while like but recently he came back with uh he did a segment in trapped ashes which i saw which was very bizarre it was like about how stanley kubrick's girlfriend is a vampire or something and uh this new movie road to nowhere which which got some very mixed reviews but i think it's also a similarly kind of tough movie i mean that's the other thing as well about 
this film is that when I kind of when I think about some of the road movie and things like that, you kind of think like wide, massive vistas and stuff like that. But for the most part, it is actually set in the cars, isn't it? It's a very yeah. confined film in many respects. The soundtrack is like pretty much the hum of the engine, like the yeah. roar of the engine. Like that's the no- that's like the constant noise of the movie. It's really it's, and it's actually something very, you know, kind of uh, spacey about it. You know, like it's kind of like a you know background noise like waves crashing or something that you kind of get lost in you know i don't know i read quite an interesting article in sight and sound actually about it and they were saying that one of the reasons why you know they they don't speak very much in the film is because they're both listening to the engine all the time to make sure Mm. any any sort of sign of imperfection they can kind of stop at the side of the road and sort it out dennis wilson's character you know anytime something is up he's just like he he his he like jumps on it you know and he knows exactly what's wrong <laughs> yeah. you know like he tells gto that like he's leaking gas all over the engine and stuff and you know gto clearly doesn't know anything about cars <laughs> it's but, interesting uh, that they help each other out along the way still they're in the race and why doesn't they just go for it but they seem to help each other out and want the other one to have a car that is working yeah that again that was another thing that slightly confused me because i'm thinking Where's the race here? Yeah. Because yeah, they're just sort of basically just plodding along, aren't they, next to each other? It seems like they don't want the other one to drop out. They want they want to continue this race as long as possible. Mm. And then they kind of, it just kind of falls off at the mm. end. You know? Well, that's what I mean a bit about the sort of, you know, plot wise on this film. It, it does feel like that sort of like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll have a race. We'll go off in this direction. Hmm. What, was that, what was that? And you're, as the audience, you're sort of sat there thinking, "Well, what, where's this race?" And you know, and I was, I was listening to a commentary with Monty Allen. I think he was talking about you know how influenced he was by kind of European films of the time. Hmm. And you know, we we're kind of discussing this before we start recording. Things like the Godard stuff, and it does have. And I hate sort of I don't really like phrasing it this way, but there's a, I can't think of another way to do it. But it, it does have a kind of a European feel about it. It doesn't seem as kind of you know plot heavy and as kind of icon obsessed that some of the other kind of western yeah you think about Thelma and Louise because every uh, every available opportunity Ridley Scott's like look how big this country is look how wide you know look at all these things that you'll recognize and you know it feels like kind of a touristy film in a way and this doesn't have any of that whatsoever it's really great like the the bit where they're in Santa Fe like in the town square and Laurie Bird's walking around asking people for money. Yeah. Uh, Santa Fe still looks like that. Like right. still people <laughs> people sitting out on, on the sidewalks in the square with all their wares placed out, selling them. It's exactly like that still. <laughs> I, I laugh whenever I see that because I'm like, this is one thing in the movie that has not changed. <laughs> well, I, I think that's what the, the, the good things about this film. Though. I don't think it's it hasn't aged badly at all. No, I think it's aged better than stuff like Easy Rider. Definitely. Oh, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, I mean, I know. I mean, going back to Easy Rider, but you watch Easy Rider now, and you do sort of think, man, this does. You know, it's like watching the yeah the documentary Woodstock. One of the it hasn't aged at all is because there is no dialogue. There's no kind of political kind of. They don't sit there, do they? Discussing like how the fuck are we going to get out of dodging the draft or bring the boys home or anything like this. You know, there's just nothing like that. It doesn't really go into hippie culture at all. You no. know, like. Like, you know, Easy Rider is firmly in that hippie culture. You know, they go to the communes and blah, blah, blah. And the soundtrack is positively slathered in music. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's only like a couple of songs on the soundtrack for this. There's Me and Bobby McGee by Chris Christopherson. And there is uh, that Doors song, which the name eludes me. But they he picked pretty timeless tunes. Like, and, and you know, they were obviously songs that were of the time. But they're songs that have aged pretty well, you know. You're not going to hear, like, 
songs that are really associated with that era, like, you know, like, uh, you know, something by the band or something like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, and it's, it's as well, because I mean, like, um, I don't think it's, it's not a nostalgic film either, is it really? I, I think no. it, it's, it's a straight, it's, and then that's one thing, the, the, the way they look as well, the, the two lead actors, you know, Dennis Wilson, James Taylor, and everything, that's how people kind of dress now as well. They look like modern hipsters. Like, exactly, yeah. And it's it sort of, you sort of, I, I sort of thinking, I thought, you know, you know, credit to it because, and as well, I think keeping it sort of really, most of it takes place kind of, you know, out in the country as well. So you don't sort of see, you know, the impact, you know, you, you can't look at the cities and say, well, you know, apart from Santa Fe, which apparently hasn't changed at all, as you say, so, <laughs> you know, which I, I find that quite disturbing, actually, because it does look pretty awful. Actually, New Mexico is breathtakingly beautiful. Right. But it's actually one of my favorite states in the u.s to visit because it's everything is pretty small everything's pretty everything's beautiful uh you know it's it's just it it just feels like you know this kind of magical pocket of america uh but he didn't really go into the new mexico-iness of it at all (laughs) but there were moments where i was like oh look dried chili peppers hanging from the from by the hotel room that's that's something you see there all the time you know yeah that's the other thing as well because i mean i I didn't really get any an idea unless you sort of know what these places look like i I don't get any idea where they are in america either which i don't know i don't know i don't know is that i mean is that i mean can you watch i mean i'm not from america so obviously but i mean could you watch that and sort of say oh they're here then you know that kind of thing there were there are only a few things like uh like i could tell like at the end where they go to that big race circuit yeah um uh, I could tell that, you know, they were in Memphis because, you know, I saw like, you know, Poplar, such and such Poplar's the big main street through Memphis. And so since I used to live there, I know that. Yeah. But there weren't – but he he did, like you said earlier, he stays away from the iconography, the big American iconography. It's very much like in those little Route 66 pockets that are pretty nondescript. It really needs to be shot on the road, on location. It couldn't be shot on the back lots in LA or in the back roads even. No. It needs to have that gritty feel and just feel the expansiveness of the, of the road, basically, and living on it. Yeah, because one of the interesting anecdotes that came out of it, when they were trying to get funding for the film, apparently they took it to all these studios. And this guy was like, oh, you know, it would be really dead boring. And apparently... Uh, Monty Hellman went back and he actually he took back 26 26 or 28 pictures from inside the car to show how many angles he could get inside it just to prove you know, the film wouldn't look the same all the time as it were and that is one of the things I, I, I do really enjoy about it because it never it, it has the potential to be extremely boring I think visually and I don't think this film is at all I think you know and it's gone for no. the kind of the wide frame as well but it's very much you know it keeps it in the camp in the car you know and to Kind of you know compose like that. I think it's you know pretty impressive work. Well, I do want to know what do you guys think of Easy Rider? Like, what's your what's your take on that movie? Oh yeah, um, I love it actually. I really do enjoy Easy Rider. Um, it, it's it, again, I, I think you know, I, I I think it's an example of when the road movie's done properly. I think that's mm. that's that's what I kind of want from because it has kind of like yeah, it is fairly sort of you. Know, it does. It has obviously it's very aged a lot, and it's kind of quite hippified and things like that. And but it, it, it I find it quite amusing. It gen, I generally find it quite sad at the end, you know. And um, mm. yeah, I think it's sort of it's easy to mock Easy Rider. I think, but I, sure. I for one personally really enjoy it. 
I do too. Uh, I just bought the uh, BBS box set from Criterion, which is an excellent like set to get a grasp of these uh, 70s movies in America that were coming out from the new Hollywood era. Mm-hmm. I just love the the road movie, the anti-establishment, and just this distinct new independent cinema that is coming out of this exciting times. <laughs> and um, I feel that it's tapping into that development in the country, that youth culture that very few other films uh, manages to do successfully. You know what my favorite movie in that BBS box set is? Mm-hmm. Head. <clears throat> you seen Head? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I... Oh, man. I can tell I'm not in. I can, I can feel that I'm not in. No. You know, I, I, friendly no, company. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> no. I, 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 oh, I, man. I, Oh no, I, that that was the one I was like. Oof. Just to get back on track here, but I don't feel that uh, Two Lane Blacktop is an imitation of Easy Rider because I I read no. reviews on the line that said that this is like he's cashing in on Easy Rider and basically wanting to make the same film. But I feel that this is a far more subdued film and it's not political at least, and he's not like no. trying to capture these great outdoor vistas that Easy Rider is, but it's more of a realistic film. Like looking at I feel like it's actually a a critique of the hippie lifestyle in a sort of way. He's looking at the country going astray and he's like lamenting the new development in the country, perhaps. I I think the only th- real thing you can say about Tulane Blacktop and Easy Rider is that if it wasn't for the success of Easy Rider, Tulane Blacktop may not have ever been mm. made. Yeah. But that it's not a movie that is trying to cop or ca- to cash in or rip off or any of that, you know. It's just maybe owes a, a bit of a debt to its existence to Easy Rider maybe. I mean Hunter, what were you sorry, wouldn't you actually get to your thoughts? What I mean what what were your kind of thoughts on Easy Rider? Oh, I mean I pretty much agree with you guys. I think it's, you know, it's a really fun movie. I love the soundtrack. I love the way it's shot. You know, it's just, I like the feel of it. It has aged poorly, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, I think it is a bit full of itself at times, but it is a, but it is a, a an important movie in American cinema. So, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I think like Two Lane Blacktop, it kind of comes at the end where you have, I've spoken about before in the film Give Me Shelter where you have this kind of all these ideals of the 60s and all this kind of thing you know it's going to change the world and really absolutely nothing changed and I kind of feel like Two Lane Blacktop kind of embodies that a little bit because this kind of pair's existence it seems pretty superficial doesn't it really it's just this car they're, 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 they're dudes who are hiding from life through their obsessions you yeah. know, <laughs> and you sort Pretty of yeah, you know, because you know, if you, you should look at this film, and say like, you know, what's it like going out on the roads of America? You think, well, you pick up freaks like William Oates, who just habitually, <laughs> li- who basically, who's who, yeah, like I said, he's so bored of himself, he just invents stupid stories about himself, and then you know, picks up hitchhikers because he's got nothing better to do, and you see these kind of two kind of neurose kind of dudes just go bimbling along, you know, having kind of the odd race here and there. You sort of think. It's not really. You think the you getting on the road. It's all about freedom and all this kind of thing, and it really sort of isn't, is it? It's sort of just crushingly yeah, no, boring. It's, it's kind of slavery here. Yeah, know? I mean, it is. It is. It they, they are free and open, but at the same time, they are obsessed with this car, with racing, with all that stuff. It's just like that's what drives them, and that's it. You know, it's kind of like a western, but with cars. And there's this old old gunfighters that you feel like. Their time has gone, and they have no, 
they have nothing to do, they have no responsibilities, and they're just they're just meandering along the road with nothing to go. Exactly, yeah, and it's sort of like, yeah, I mean, these cars, I mean, are you, I mean, I personally, I have absolutely zero interest in cars whatsoever. That's something that makes me feel like a giant pussy is because, like, you know, I hear dudes talking about cars and I'm like, man, I wish I knew what they were talking about. <laughs> you know, like, it's something I wish I knew, but I don't need another, like, hobby or obsession, no. you know? I suppose the, the crux of these kind of films is, you know, it's all about the kind of the car, but it, it seems like, yeah, I've, I've never seen American graffiti. I have to kind of confess now, really, but there is that sort of, it's, I think, a pref- is it, and over again, I think it's a very kind of profound aspect of kind of American culture is that kind of like, you know, the, the obsession with the hot rods and all that kind of thing and, you know, coming out of the 50s and stuff. That's just something I've just no interest in whatsoever. You know, it just seems like I've never heard someone who's had an obsession with cars ever say anything vaguely interesting to me about cars. That's made me go, wow, geez, you know, God. Whoa. I'll, yeah, I'm like you. All I want to know is how badly can I sh- scare the shit out of the car next to me with my Slayer records? Like, <laughs> yeah. how that's all I care about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How much beer can I put in the boot? You know, it's it, they're the most pertinent. <laughs> they're, they're the most pertinent questions. You know what I mean? And these two are kind of like, you know, every single penny goes into you know new things, and you just sort of think, guys, you know, it's a fairly sort of dire existence. I don't think it's. I, I, it, you don't watch that film and think, God, you know, I, I really want to be those characters out there on the road. No. All I do is go, oh, I wish I knew more about cars. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I do have that passing thought, just so I could feel more manly. You yeah, know? yeah, sort of feel looking out. But I mean, it's like a lot of these kind of things, you know, like, because it's there, you know, kind of like kind of counterculture movements and things like that. You sort of see it today, kind of things that we have, like, kind of like the Occupy movement and things like that. And I just look at them and I think, you kind of got a point in some respects, but... I feel so detached and alienated from that. And I think in many ways, I am probably kind of the antithesis of boring, really. I quite like kind of possessions and a house and safety. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't sort of, I don't go out and protest and things like that. And so when I kind of watch these types of films, I don't sit there thinking, God, I want that. You know, it just seems a bit sort of like, well, better you than me, you know. Yeah, like uh, it's like that Clash song, Safe European Home. Where yeah. they 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 spend so much time fetishizing like reggae culture, but then they go there and they get mugged, and they're just like, "I'm just gonna stay in my safe European home." <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm good. Like, Huey Lewis in the news summed it up with "Hip to be square." I think that's kind of yeah, the, yeah that's, pretty that's, much. That's how I sort of yeah. That, I'm, I'm Patrick Bateman in that respect. You know, I think there's nothing yeah. wrong with there's nothing wrong with conformity. You know, what I mean? yeah. <laughs> uh, when you watch like when you watch Easy Rider, I, I did get that feeling that. I want to travel to America and go on a road trip and travel across the country because he's kind of celebrating yeah. that movement. But with uh, Tulane Blacktop, it's kind of the disillusionment of the same activity, basically. Okay, I mean, I, I know someone who watched this um, on my recommendation, actually, and was like, came back to me and was like, what a pile of shit that film is. It's just so boring and dull. It's just nothing in there for it. And I sort of, and it's a bit like, you know, like the film Drive, I suppose. It's a lot of it's about mood. You know, as opposed mm, yeah. to sort of anything more than that, and in a way, do you think that almost becomes a little bit kind of superficial? I don't know. I really am susceptible to mood. Like, yeah. you know, it's weird because like I have friends who are really into movies, but there are certain movies we just can't agree on, and I'm really susceptible to mood. So I like Italian horror, mm. and they can't fucking stand it. You know, like if you put on a Fulci film, they're like, "This is a piece of shit. Get it out of my face." You know, if you put on two-lane blacktop they're like nothing's happening get this out of my face you know but i get like into the mood and the atmosphere and stuff i don't know i'm just really 
susceptible to that. <laughs> but I, I also understand that a lot of people aren't like they, you know, need something else. I, I do really like mood more than action like uh, for example alien it's incredible yeah. just the first hour of alien is simply mood but i love that first hour and you can still create the mood and still have interesting characters i feel like where tulane is suffering for me is that the characters aren't really interesting mm-hmm. i feel like it, the mood is the mood is set as i was saying earlier but I, i'm not really drawn to any other characters and not drawn to the story so i just feel like after a while the mood only does so much for me it, you have to be in the mood you have to but the thing but you have to be in a certain frame of mind to watch films like this yeah i don't think it's like watching like um um you know i recently saw the terence mallet film to the wonder and mm. i was in i was in the perfect way yeah it, i watched it it's one of those screenings where you know, there was no noise. No one was making any noise or anything like that, and I could just sit there and enjoy the film. And you know, normally over the course of cinema, I will you know check the time and things like that. I didn't do that at all. And when people were coming out of that, they were saying, "God, that was so boring and so dull and so it looked pretty." And this kind of thing. And I was thinking, I was like, you know, I loved it from the off, really, and I was you know got quite invested in it. But that's another film as well where Terence Malick doesn't film an argument; he films three seconds after the argument ends. And, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just that, that kind of atmosphere. You know, we've all been there. We've had a blazing route with the other half or something like that. And, you know, there's that sort of tense sort of moment, you know, for about 10 minutes afterwards where you both kind of think. And that's, he seemed to capture that kind of mood. And I, I for one, I, I really went into it and, you know, enjoyed it on that level. And films like Two Lane Blacktop, it's, you know, well, the first time I watched it, I think it was like quite late at night, about 11 o'clock, and I'd had a few drinks and it, it just sort of washed over me. And the next time I saw it, I tried to watch it like during the day when there was like loads going on and, you know, bloody cars outside and things like that and I didn't get into it at all really but I kind of gone back to it again and watched it in that kind of similar mode where it was like just me on my own few beers and what have you and you can just kind of like soak it in in that basis and in that respect I think I really appreciate when I see it on those terms but when I don't I, when you, I think that's when you become frustrated at the fact that you want it to kind of stimulate you a little bit more and kind of ask a bit much which isn't there you know it's like a kind of a, you know, a soothing lights and music or something like that you know you can just sort of sit mm. there and sort of just kind of soak it up and that's you know that's how i enjoy it on those bases and you know, i know we keep talking about easy rider but if you go back and watch that it has kind of far more kind of a poppy feel to it you know you can kind of yeah it does of, like you're you're toe tap into the music <laughs> you're yeah, singing yeah. along with the band you know and on that you just you know, turn back to you sort of sit there and just go yeah that was all right you know it's like listening to a burt Bacharach album you sort of get anything <laughs> that's, like, that's that's fucking easy you know and that's how i feel about these types of films you, know, you sort of you know that wasn't offensive it was just yeah it just was but it's a very hypnotizing movie i feel that you get once you get into it you're caught in its web basically and he connects to something that is real and he's trying to connect to everyday life and it's more reacting to events that are happening than they are acting basically and i think he tries he's trying to capture the world out there and i think he succeeds in that and he wants to make he wants to make films about their inner state of mind rather than things that are happening out in the world but by trying Mm -hmm. to hit those uh, emotional marks uh, inside them he's capturing something that is um, universal basically yeah, that is the thing about Tulane Blacktop. I think it's just a kind of it's like a, a, a miniature slice of real life. It's mm. not there's there's nothing sort of artificial. There's no sort of artificial kind of drama added to it at all, really. I mean, and like I say, yeah, it does have these kind of moments of kind of amusement. Like my favorite bits where um, GTO, I think he's been pulled by the police, and, and they mm. go back and like um, 
and uh, the guy's like you know oh, this guy who's just cutting me up officer and all that kind of thing and he just like zooms off like really fast yeah. and it's like <laughs> you know you, you kind of have that scene that you were like you know, you, you're wondering what's going to happen and like you know they're going to like beat the coppers up or something like that so he can get <laughs> away and it's just this sort of like really bizarre exchange and it's sort of thinking mm-hmm. you can imagine stuff like that happening though it doesn't seem unrealistic what they do and it's just sort of, apparently there was a line cut as well where one of the police officers turns and says, um, I think we got the wrong mm. guy mm. when those two speed off. But I mean, just little moments like that and you sort of think it doesn't feel fake or sort of, you know, you know, it's been shoehorned in there for kind of drama's sake. It just feels like it's a you know, something that's naturally occurring. I think he called mm. himself a frustrated documentarian, Monty right. Hellman. And it's you can sense that he he's less obsessed with the narrative and more obsessed with just capturing those moments in life, yeah. He 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 very much so. Like when his movies are more narrative driven, I think they're less interesting. Like uh, I I really like his movies that are sort of more spacey, like this and Cockfighter. You don't like Silent Night stuff. Three, or was it? <laughs> I have seen I have seen Silent Night, Deadly Night Three, and you know it's there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's there. Is that is that is, is that good? No, I mean uh, I tell you what, it's a good film. Actually, really underrated film. It's the film he did the shooting, which he did four years mm. before this. That's a quality Western. With Warren um, Oates as well. Yeah. I really, really, I've been saying this on social media forever, and whenever it happens, like, Monty Hellman retweets it or whatever, but Criterion needs to make an Eclipse box set of Monty Hellman Westerns. Yeah. Like, The Shooting, Ride the Whirlwind, China 9, Liberty mm. 37, or whatever. Those, that would make a killer Eclipse box set. No, but I could say, actually, I mean, just to talk about the, you know, the, um, the kind of the, the other people involved in this film, because... Oh yeah. Let's see who this film's produced by for a minute. You know, it's like it's yeah, like Gary Gary Kurtz produced it. Yeah, and and I'm thinking, oh, it must be another Gary Kurtz. You know, and I'm checking, <laughs> like, no shit, it's Gary, it's Gary Kurtz. You know, it's like you know, this is the you know Star Wars Empire Strikes Back and stuff like the that. The most thinking, important you know, man in the Star Wars universe, in my eyes. I I agree. And it's like you know, I'm sitting there thinking, well, what's he doing with this? You know what I mean? But then when you kind of look at it, and I mean. I, I can see you know, how you know, Gary Kurtz and like, you know, he started off in these kind of independent thing. You know, I, in, in many ways, it seems like a quintessential Gary Kurtz film. Mm-hmm. No, right? Because you know, this was actually the first film he produced, and then he did he did do American Graffiti as well, didn't he? Y- yeah, he did, and that's where he teamed up with Lucas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the writer uh, Rudy Wurlitzer, uh, he he's in the movie. He's one of the guys they race. The guy with the mustache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's like, make it three, motherfucker, and we'll race. But he also wrote, we were talking about Alex Cox earlier. He wrote Alex Cox's Walker. Mm. Yeah, and that is a great film as well. Yeah, and, I mean, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, so, yeah, I mean, as I say, you know, obviously we've got Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid after this as well. And Monty Hellman was uh, supposed to direct uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and ended up uh, really? not doing it. Sam Peckerbot did it, but. I suppose when you watch these films, there is this sort of a, a melancholiness to them, isn't there, really? Mm. Especially. Mm-hmm. Pat Garrett and Billy Kid, but I mean Walker. I mean that film is. Have you have you have you, have you both seen that? I uh, yeah, I've got it. Uh, the only thing I didn't like was that the end credit sequence seems to contradict the rest of the movie, where he's trying to say that uh, because it's all about staging this fake war basically and trying to elicit emotion from us, and then suddenly at the end he's using real images of real wars, and uh, that just struck wrong with me. But it's it's been a while. Uh, it's been five years yeah. since I've seen it. But that was the shut thing. up. <laughs> yeah. That was uh, the thing that I didn't like about it. That aside, I do think. I mean, he's, he he has not got 
a massive filmography, is he? I don't think Randy Wallace. No, it. like I think after Pat Garrett, he didn't write anything until Walker. I don't think. I mean, he was right. kind of known as a novelist. But I mean, yeah, you think about about two name back to I mean, it is very much you know that when I learn obviously who who had written it and things like that, it does seem to be that this was sort of it doesn't get mentioned. I don't think as kind of one of kind of the, the kind of the quintessential films of the seventies. It doesn't seem to be in that kind of pantheon of films that everyone always well, drones on about. Well, and it, I think it's probably. Because it was sort of – this movie was not uh, big at the box office. In fact, it was kind of buried by the studio. Mm. Like I think my dad said he saw it in at the drive-in or something. And my dad grew up in like, you know, fucking middle of nowhere, Texas. And so it was probably playing in that market, you know, not uh, not like the cities and stuff where all the intellectuals are. You know, it was probably playing on the same bill as like Corman films, you know. Mm. So probably the people who the tastemakers weren't watching this movie. Yeah, and it it didn't get a home release until twenty eight years after it got a theatrical release. So it's it hasn't been in the cultural vein at all. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean I think I always struggle with when when it's sometimes I think when people sort of say, oh, you know, it's the cult classic, this the cult that, instantly my sort of heckles go up a little bit because a lot of the times I think to myself, you know, it just I, more often than not, I find myself getting quite disappointed when people say, oh, you've got to see this kind of a cult classic or this kind of thing. And that didn't really happen with Tulane Blacktop. And I, I it's, it, I, I don't think it's as popular as people think it is in many respects. No, but it should be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it should be. And it's like, because it's the thing really, I mean, it's like, yeah, you know, we always do something, but I mean, would you like recommend this film to people? Um, I don't think so. Uh, I would, I would let them discover it for themselves, but I don't think I could. Uh, it would have to be someone that were really into cinema and knew how to read a movie, because most of my friends they are looking after the latest explosions, and I have very mm. few friends who can appreciate this kind of movie. So, and I think those who can appreciate this kind of movie, they know about it and know how to find it. Yeah. I mean, Hunter, what about you? Uh, well, okay. I have the Criterion DVD of this movie. Uh, if I get the Blu-ray, I'll pro- I'll get the Masters of Cinema one probably because the DVD of the Tulane Blacktop is just such a gorgeous little set. But I, I really, really, really like this film. I mean... To, to illustrate how much I like it, if you were to put a gun to my head and said I could only keep like 10 of my movies in my collection, I this one would go in the stack. Because A, I love the film, and B, the package is just awesome. Like, I'm, you know, my pants just went down a size just, you know, thinking <laughs> about it. But, uh, you know, it, it, I just love the way this movie makes me feel. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm kind of worthless on this episode because I'm having trouble articulating why I like it. But uh, it just just washes over me. I I like, you know, Warren Oates is one of my favorite uh, actors. You know, if you look up man in the dictionary, see a picture of Warren Oates, you know, smoking a cigar and holding a gun. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everyone carried a piece in those days, it seems. Yeah, of course. You you weren't a man if you didn't carry, you know. A piece in a flask. It's just, you know. 
I, 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 I said I've born in the wrong time, you know, because <laughs> when I carry when, when I carry my gun around, <laughs> get the booze out, everyone's like, you know, you get like dirty looks and stuff like that, and it's just like. Yeah. But no, I mean, the thing about two name blacktop is I, I don't honestly know the one person I did give it to hated it, and I, I don't honestly know anyone who, if I gave this film, said watch this, hmm. who would enjoy it. I, I can't think of a single person who oh, it, within yeah, my circle sorry, of friends. I... I didn't answer the question really if I would recommend it to people, but I do want to say that uh, I don't really know many people who appreciate this kind of film. If I smell somebody who might, I will force it on yeah. them, yeah. but I don't think I've ever shown it to anybody just because, you know, it's such a specific flavor of film that, you know, I don't know too many people who get off it's on like this stuff. It's like we said earlier that you have to be in the mood to see this kind of film, and uh, unless you're in that certain setting and you have that beer in front of you like you do uh you can't i don't think it's i think the movie deserves a certain atmosphere around it when you're watching it i've seen it enough times though to where like i like having it on in the background yeah you know? no, I, I was just i was literally just about to say that it is to me it's one of those films where sometimes when i'm working from home i put films on i put like terence malick films on and things like that just because it's like you can sort of you don't you can obviously can just sit there and watch you Get, get into them but i sometimes feel just like having them on is quite soothing and quite you know inspiring at the same time and this is one of those films where i have that sort of kind of a- affection for it in a way because you can just put it on and kind of you know pot around but you, you're not going to miss anything really because there's not really much happening and it's like then suddenly you get to that brilliant scene with kind of harry dean stanton and the leg yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like you can say sit there and kind of like going go on that and stuff like that. and it's it's a very strange film to lane blacktop because i it's I, I know i really like it but i don't really know why i like it that much i just sort of think it's one of these sort of little oddities that it, you don't get films like this made very very often and you know i think one reason i like it so much like you know we were talking about road movies like it is a movie that captures a very specific little thing in america that's just kind of disappeared hmm. you know yeah. like i was talking about earlier like i love the scenes where they stop at like pumping stations in small towns you know yeah. like and the it, it all just kind of seems run down and strange it just it just kind of makes me wonder what are what are, where are those places now and you know what's there and what does it look like you know i'm reading uh, jack kerouac's uh, on the road uh, now and um you fucking hippie sorry <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> one of my favorite books ever <laughs> but i feel like you know, this movie captures that same kind of mood of just being on the road. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, well, actually, I, I'm, I'm gonna have to go in the fucking hippie category because I love on the road. And um, I've yeah, never I, read it, so I, I was just, yeah. I just wanted to insult him. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so so narrow-minded, but no. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's a strange, it's a definitely a strange one, and it, I, I think it's um, well, it was one of these kind of films that both kind of Criterion and Master Cinema, yeah, they've both obviously picked it up and put it in in the collection. And I think it's it's the type of film that is tailor-made of people like masters of cinema and the criterion collection hmm. yeah i definitely want to get the the blu-ray of the masters of cinema one so i can have that spine number <laughs> <laughs> yeah damn it the oh. gap <laughs> i'm like i'm like i don't want to buy two lane blacktop on blu-ray twice so i'm just gonna hang on to my criterion dvd and get the masters of cinema blu-ray yeah. well i mean just just sort of moving on to the blu-ray actually and you, you might you might want to sort of if you're gonna be like um ultra picky about it i did sort of pick up some of the um you know the comparisons between the criteria and the mass cinema and i I think on blu-ray.com anyway they definitely sort of gave the edge to the um the criterion blu-ray over the mass cinema but films like this i don't think that they're never ever going to look you know like 
Avatar, are they? I mean, that's sort of... You know. No, and they're not supposed to. I kind of like, you know, I like the way my DVD copy looks. It just, yeah. like, it kind of keeps it, it looks like a grungy postcard, you know? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's this bleak, like, slightly weak and muted colours and low contrast and little grainy, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's it, certainly. I mean, yeah, you, you watch... I mean, you, there's so much rain in this film as well. I mean, that's the other thing I noticed when I went back to it as well. It's like, you know, it sort of reminded me of Britain a bit. You know, it's just constantly kind of washed out streets and pissing with rain. And, you know, when I was looking at the transfer, you know, because I thought, you know, this kind of Blu-ray, the first time I saw it was, I think it might have been VHS or something like that. And, uh, you know, it was pretty awful. And then I, I thought the kind of, I was expecting to be kind of blown away by the Blu-ray and I kind of wasn't. But then I sort of thought, well, no, this is really just more of an accurate representation <laughs> of how it should look, you know, as best mm-hmm. as it's going to look. And, you know, you don't need to sort of, you know, spruce it up too much because it is quite, you know, a sort of melancholy film. And I think the kind of the visual presentation certainly kind of complements that. I don't need to see the dirt in James Taylor's pores. No. <laughs> yeah, no one needs to see that. And the picture quality is generally, it's very good, I feel. Like, the there's a lot of dark scenes in the film where they are using only available light. And I think technically it looks quite good. Yeah, I do, and as well. I mean, and I suppose we're going to go into it now, but I mean, like, the kind of the sound mix for it. There is the original mono on there, and they have done a, um, a surround sound mix for it. I actually... I've listened to both, and I think I still prefer the, the mono version. Actually, mm. um, I, th- I think it was sort of I like, like I said, I like to watch how it how it was presented, basically in the best way possible. And uh, I think certainly, you know, it's it's passable, really. You know, it's more than adequate for that film. I, I would be interested in listening to the five point one sound where there are a lot of car sounds, just as, just to like experience what that is. Yeah, to be fair, it wasn't like, you know, massive sort of, I don't think the kind of the rear channels were getting, you know, a massive workout. Okay. But, you know, it's, it's, it certainly sounded good, you know, Fidelity's good and everything like that. But mm. it's got some decent features as well on it. I mean, did you check any of those out? I have seen uh, everything. I saw the uh, film with the commentary earlier today and I really enjoy that. It's uh, chock full of, uh, like, uh, anecdotes and experiences and how they shot the different scenes. And, yeah, really good with uh, producer Kurtz as well. Is that on the Criterion disc? I can't remember as well. I do have it, but... No, it's uh, the one uh, on the Criterion version, you have a commentary with Hellman and Alison Anders, mm, right. the lady who made gas food lodging and stuff like that. And then you have one with Rudy Rulitzer and David Meyer. So no oh, uh, right. no Gary Kurtz. Oh, no, right. Well, I, I, to be honest, it's been ages since I, cause I bought the Criterion. I think it might be one of the ones that I bought and have never watched, actually. I think I might just watch the features on it. I've I've eaten all the features on this. <laughs> it's a two disc one as well, isn't it? I think the criteria. Yeah, it is. And it comes with the the script, which is wildly different from the film. Hmm. Really? Uh, how much so? Yeah. Oh, uh, there's just tons, lots more dialogue. Because I mean, that's the other thing as well. You know, when you when you think about this film now, now I mean, this film now they would have it would be chocker. It would be wall to wall talking, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah. you, mm. you simply you would you simply no one now really. I don't think apart from you, know, kind of Terence Malick would dare to, to kind of like strip it down that much. And I think that's the other thing as well. You know, this isn't a it's not a Tarantino film, is it? By any stretch mm-hmm. of the imagination, in terms thing. But um, well, what uh, what other features? The On the Road Again documentary. Uh, that is so. That is both on Criterion and Masters of Cinema, from what I know. And uh, I th- I thought that was great where he's traveling along uh, the locations, different locations with his students and uh, talking about uh, how it was shooting them. Yeah. And as well, there was a brilliant, I thought quite a good interview with um, Chris Christopherson mm. on it, actually, who kind of, I, I get the impression he wanted to be in the film quite badly in <laughs> some respect and wasn't basically. I think he was, um, 
he does quite an interesting interview where he kind of talks about his career, which kind of came to a very, very abrupt end with Heaven's Gate. Well, we're like the 21st century Nazis. <laughs> he's like, well, that, yeah, he, he does start going off on one about Iraq, actually. And sort of yeah, thinking, hey, hang on a minute, I was we're, like, we're hold up. Um, I, I was like, yeah, can we get back on the subject of not invading other no, no alright okay, carry on mate. Yeah, here, make your point and I, I, well, that, I think it cuts back to Monty Hellman who's just sat there nodding you can probably tell he's yeah. thinking shut the fuck up and just talk well, about my Monty's film. pretty left wing but I was just like where, where, wait where, how did we get on this topic you know? <laughs> I know I mean that's the thing I mean, but, I mean if you read any of Armand White every single film he comes out he always relates it back to 9-11 yeah. I'm thinking, I was like yeah, just like come on you yeah, really Really, like Ghost Rider, Spirit of the Vengeance. Oh, yeah. like, you know, he's like, yeah, look, you know, listen to the title, like Spirit of the Vengeance. It's about thinking, what? What are you talking about, you deranged idiot? You know what I mean? Like, where does it come from? <laughs> it's Neville Dean Taylor are commenting with verve and panache on the state of America after in the post 9-11 era. Well, that's, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, when you think about the film like Two Lane Blacktop, really... Well, one of the reasons why I think it probably would struggle now is because people wouldn't be able to relate it back to anything of massive significance. That seems yeah. to be the thing. You know, you have to everything that comes out now. We have to kind of go right. You know, um, yeah. The end of this film's like you know, really, it's talking about the, the Iraq invasion. You can't just have two dudes in a car driving off. You know, yeah. getting up to stuff. That's just yeah. It's just, it's just you know, it's somewhere, somewhere you'd have to kind of link it back to some sort of. But I, I don't completely agree with that because you had to have the uh, JFK shootings and the Kent shootings and um, Vietnam War for example so you have this country in disruption so I'm not yeah but I mean I don't I don't think Tulane Blacksop's making any kind of massive statement about anything really I think it's uh, I, I think it's critiquing like the direction the, the road is uh, or America is taking like it's leaving this old past behind and heading off to a new uncertain doom basically you can see that in this in the scene where where they are coming across this uh, car crash and I feel like that is where our characters are ending are heading this impending doom that is lying in front of them basically the only reason um, Joachim's saying that is because of 9-11 yeah yeah, that's true. If nine <laughs> eleven had never yeah. happened, you would yeah. not have these thoughts. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, no. I, yeah, well, I don't know. I don't necessarily agree with that. To be honest with you, I, I, I think it's. A, I think when people kind of stretch to kind of attach these kind of meanings to it, I it, sometimes I just sort of think to myself that that's. I've never ever watched it and had that kind of thought about mm. it. So it might come next time. There's I another nine eleven. I, I think like maybe it is a foreshadowing for the characters. I'm not. I, I'm not so sure. Tulane Blacktop is all that informed by politics or the social climate, but I do think that like that is an interesting thought. The like the the the, the car crash on the road and stuff like that. And you can see that in the end where James Taylor is. You can feel this anger. Like it's almost coming through to us and like when the uh, film is catching fire so mm-hmm. uh, i just feel like there's this anger that is edging to break out yeah and actually just c- c- jump on that a second what did you make of that bit where the, the film catches fire i felt like it related to both the uh, character of the driver uh like this he's caught in this whirlwind that he can't get out and I feel like it's destruction is heading towards him, basically. But also, I think it's just a merely cinematical, like um, a thing that Monty Hellman does to pull us out of the hypnotizing state that we have been in and 
bringing us back to the theater. And we've just seen like him kind of, you know, lose the Laurie Bird character. Mm. And, you know, it just almost seems like, you know, this obsession, you know, is going to burn him out. Mm. You know? Yeah, no, I, I, it, it, it really, the last time I watched it, actually, it really sort of stuck in my mind. Like, you know, why has he done that? And it like it's weird because it did suddenly make me feel like, you know, you suddenly become very, very aware you're watching a film. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes I don't necessarily like that. You know, I don't like it when characters break the fourth wall in films. And uh, apart from Annie Hall, that's the only exception when that's acceptable. <laughs> but no, I, I suddenly thought to myself, oh, shit, I'm watching a film. And it sort of <laughs> it jarred me a little bit. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, you know what I mean? I was like, oh, shit. You know, that, well, that wasn't a documentary. <laughs> it's sort of like, oh. And Which, yeah, I, it's I very fashionable it. to do that now, have the film catch on fire and warp and stuff like that. Mm. You know, like kind of artificially recruit, do that. In, it's that grindhouse in, feel that uh, yeah. many are reaching for. Yes, exactly. <laughs> grindhouse. <laughs> I could, I could oh. he- feel Tom's douche chills coming through my headphones. No, my 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 issue with Grindhouse. If you're going to make a Grindhouse film, don't make one that costs thirty million dollars. Oh, I, make I one agree. That, that movie was such a make, bomb. Make make, make make one that costs two hundred thousand dollars. And I mean, I was like, that movie shouldn't have cost more than like a million bucks. You know. Well, I, I just don't. I don't get it. All it was was a, an expensive looking shit film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's going to be it for this episode, Hunter. Many thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. I <laughs> I hope I, I brought something to the table. <laughs> well, we'll get you back for um, uh, Birth of a Nation, I think. Oh um, boy! Woo. Yeah, we did, we did something nice and easy for us. <laughs> uh, do I have to? Do I have to wear some shoe polish or anything? Uh, no, you can come as you are. I think okay. um, we don't want to be right. we don't want to be too offensive. Okay, all right. And um, Joachim, where can they find us? They can find us at Twitter, uh, at MOC underscore cast. You can go to our website, uh, moccast.blogspot.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Tumblr and Instagram and uh, Flickr and many, many social sites. Just uh, search for Masters of Cinema Cast or MOC Cast and you will find us. So you can find me at the, at the Film Man with the two M's and two N's. Yeah, and it, um, if you can, could you also um, leave a review for us on iTunes? I hate to kind of beg, but um, they do certainly help uh, get more traffic over to us. Um, also, you can find me at 24framescast.blogstop.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast, and you can email me at um, 24framescast at gmail.com. Hunter, sorry, where can we find you on the internet as well? Uh, I have a podcast with a mad Australian called, um, and a guy named John Grace uh, called Midnight Movie Cowboys, and you can find that at MidnightMovieCowboys.com, iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, all that good stuff. Great stuff, and that is going to be it for this episode. Many thanks for listening, and we'll be in contact soon. Bye.